Welcome to the Mechanical Inc. podcast, a collection of conversations about the open source ecosystem. We speak with maintainers and companies that play a key role in ensuring the health and sustainability of open source today and in the future. Hey, Stephen. Welcome to the Mechanical Inc. podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So I found out about you and one specific uh, topic you were working on at the moment on the to-do group uh, on Slack. And um, But before we dig into any of the specific topics, um, you have a very uh, interesting background and you do a whole bunch of stuff. You write a lot. <laughs> so can you give us like a bit of background about yourself, how you got to where you are and what your interests are? Sure. I've been uh, writing about technology and the businesses of technology since the late 80s. Uh, and uh, before that, uh, I worked as a system admin, network admin, programmer, bottle washer, uh, you name it, for uh, the United States uh, Space Agency, NASA and also some for the Department of Defense. Along the way, though, where I discovered I'm pretty darn good at hands-on technology. I was even better at explaining it in English to uh, people who didn't have the first clue about technology. I, I actually discovered that uh, both those things were true on and one rather odd occasion when I was uh, working at the Goddard Space Flight Center Library, and we had a uh, library program that was going badly wrong. And I was working at the library proper, not as a developer, but I was looking over their shoulders at the code they were looking at, which was uh, IBM 360 Assembler, uh, as managed by uh, JCL, Job Control Language. And uh, I said, Well, guys, you know, we've got this problem here that it can't seem to find the data, but here, if you, at the beginning of this do-while loop, you took the data off, rather you took the DASD, the hard drive of the time, off so that when it tries to write to it, it doesn't have anywhere to write to, so it just falls through, and that's why it's crashing. And they looked at me, and I looked at them, and vice versa, and they started looking at the code, and the head librarian looked at me and said, what are you talking about? What do you mean? I mean, I said, well, it's like you take a fouling cabinet and you take a uh, the foul folder out of the cabinet, and then when you try to drop some paper back in that folder, the, fo the folder's not there anymore. So the paper just drops to the bottom of the fouling cabinet and nothing gets fouled. And she looked at me, and I looked at her, and she said, well, why couldn't you, she looked at all of us and said, well, why couldn't you explain it to me that way? And so it was actually a, on, in about five minutes, I realized that, yeah, it, was just, it wasn't just my imagination. I actually could read fairly esoteric code quite easily, and I could explain it in English to someone who had no clue what that was. So, uh, and that actually sort of set my career in motion because the um, they quickly said, well, you are now the programmer in charge of this project, which uh, didn't impress IT any, but eventually they came along and uh, 
And I also started uh, writing about this stuff, and uh, here I am today. Uh, and along the way, I also... Uh, I, mainframes were actually my very first hands-on computer work, and but after that, though, I quickly uh, moved on to uh, Unix and using C on... Uh, Vax machines and uh, early PDP P11s, all that kind of stuff, and AT&T FreeB2s. Lots of spent a lot of time in the mini computer world, and then PCs were coming on. This was again still in the late 80s, and uh, so I started doing more with them, and uh, uh, eventually I decided I could probably make more money and be more helpful uh, working on computers than rather writing about technology and computers rather than just working, continuing to work on them. Because while I'm a, you know, I'm a decent programmer and a pretty good assist and network admin, I'm a really a, I'm a better writer. And I also pick up things very quickly which is really helpful in our business because if you blink twice, you know, oh, I'm sorry, that all that stuff you learned about Go, well, forget it, it's rust now, or, you know, fill in the blank. That is very, very true. And that actually brings up a topic that I had on the list. Um, you wrote about the fact that in uh, version 6.1 of the Linux kernel, they have added support for Rust um, to be able to do kernel development with Rust. Right. And in your article in the register, mm -hmm. you said that this could be a game changer. Um, right. I know Rust is like everywhere I go, people are talking about Rust. Um, I contract with Mozilla, who started the whole development of Rust. And so I'm curious about how you see this being a, the game changer when it comes to the Linux kernel. Well, uh First of all, let me just say that uh, when Mozilla let go of Rust, I kicked them <laughs> in print a couple of places saying, guys, this is the future. And uh, sure enough, here we are. And it, it has become, it is becoming the future for a lot of major projects. Uh, the reason I say that about Linux in particular is Linux, of course, is what everything runs on now. Even people on their Windows machines and Macs, they may not be able to tell a born shell from a C shell from a bash shell. Doesn't matter. The vast majority of applications they run are now software as a service apps, and behind those, it's those applications more often than not are running on Linux one way or the other. And when that's all, that's great, and that's good. And for someone who cut his teeth on Unix, that makes me feel really good that uh, I, 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 was, I followed the right path. I thought this would be the way of the future, and turns out I was right. But um, Linux, is, like Unix before, it was written in C. And C is a very difficult language in many ways. Perhaps the most critical way for security purposes is it's really hard to do memory management properly in C. It can be done. There are some extensions that make it safer. All of that is true. But at the end of the day, 
it is trivial to write C that works perfectly well, except it's incredibly sloppy with its memory handling and really bad things can and do happen on a regular basis thanks to that. So now Rust comes along. It's also, it's fast. It's low level, like C, so you can get your hands really right there into the hardware, where you're first going to see Rust actually make a real impression, and it already is in the Linux world, is in drivers. And if you're writing stuff, if you're writing a driver, which is, you know, that connection between the hardware and the software, you've got to be a really low-level programming to get that to work properly. And Rust has this great blessing that it has memory management baked in from the very beginning. It with, with Rust, you can still certainly make lots of security mistakes and blunders, but the easiest of the mistakes to make in C of memory management are nigh on to impossible to do in Rust. You actually have to try really hard to blow that, to blow memory uh, up in Rust. And so what I see happening here is that, well, two things. One, this will make Linux safer as time goes on and more and more mechanisms, particularly drivers, and some libraries associated with drivers are written in, in Rust. And at the same time, it's also going to help bring in a new generation of developers because the Linux develop kernel community is it's graying out. I mean, yes, there are certainly new developers coming in all the time. And uh, people like Greg are always encouraging new developers to walk in and actively encourages them and helps them into uh, the kernel. Um, there's a fear out there by a lot of programmers that the Linux kernel is a really scary, scary place and that Linus will bite your head off if you uh, make a mistake. And, and if you make a big enough mistake, yes, he will. But it's actually much more welcoming than people think. Uh, and particularly uh, with people like uh, Greg and Shua Khan, who are more than happy to help uh, wet behind the ear C developers get into it. But the important thing is C developers are still, it's, you've got to be pretty darn dedicated if you really want to master C. Rust, also, it's got a learning curve too, but it's, it's simply a lot easier to use. And it certainly is much easier to write productive low-level code that's safe in, with Rust without a lot of uh, education. So it is the hope of the kernel community that this embrace of Rust will help bring in a new generation of developers. Now, that's not to say that anyone's going to take the millions of lines of code of Linux and rewrite it in Rust. That's not going to happen anytime this decade anyway. Uh, developers being developers, I'm sure someone is going to try to rewrite the entire thing in Rust eventually, because that's just the way programmers are. But uh, in the meantime, it's just it's going to be really helpful uh, both to develop a larger community for Linux and to make Linux itself safer. And since, again, we use Linux everywhere now, anything that 
helps makes Linux inherently more secure is a very good thing for all users and developers. Yeah, that's great. That sounds like a really promising move. And um, yeah, I have to agree. I agree on the thing that if somebody will try and rewrite it in Rust. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, it's what we do. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Not me, but. <laughs> um, so talking about, yeah, no, 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 I know. I, I speak to people often that um, they're very excited about Rust, and so they're just trying to find things they can rewrite in Rust to make it better and faster and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Right. Um, so uh, there's two topics I want to touch on. I'm going to start with the one angle, and that is um, that there was a couple of companies um, that was fully open source, such as MongoDB, um, Elastic, I think Redis was one mm -hmm. of those as well. And that have over the last couple of years or so um, moved to this inner source model kind of thing with a kind of mm -hmm. open source friendly kind of license. Um, right. And I saw that actually Amazon, which I was kind of surprised by, um, mm -hmm. took Elasticsearch, forked it, and created a fully mm -hmm. open source fork called OpenSearch. So um, right. I'd like to know your thoughts just on this whole idea. Like, is there a way? Because I think I, I kind of understand why some of these companies do that. It's like from a, like, we need to pay our pay salaries and, you know, people can't always work for free, all this stuff. How do you see those two worlds work together where you keep your open source thing open source, but you're still able to make, uh, build a company around it? Well, I Hmm. There are several issues there. I believe the fundamental one is is that mis people mistake uh, open source, which is a uh, software development model for a business model, and it's not, never has been. It can be extremely useful uh, in, for building a business, but you can't just assume that somehow magically open source will solve your business revenue problems and all your uh, supply chain concerns. You know, it, it just doesn't work that way. Again, it's a great software development model. It is not inherently a good business model. So a lot of these companies early on are, are delighted with open source because it helps bring in developers to them. They get uh, people who help them build their code. And that's great. They are able to much more quickly go to market with whatever their product or their service may be. But again, it's not a business model. And so they then realize that what they try to do is they go to an open core model where it's some of the code is open source, the heart of it is, but all the extensions and frameworks or whatever that you need to make it useful, those are proprietary, those you're going to charge money for, or you change the license so that you very deliberately exclude uh, software as a service providers uh, from using your uh, software. And uh, those are not they're no longer open source companies at that point. They like to say that they are, but they're they're really they're not. They've become something rather different. 
Uh, and uh, that can be really annoying to some developers. I mean, yes, I can certainly understand that if you're in the company, you want to find a way to monetize your code. But if you're, say, I'm a developer who worked on one of these projects, but I'm not a member of the company, and now you're telling me that I signed this uh, copyright agreement and you now control my code, even though I'm the original writer and this was an open source project. Yeah, that, that does not go over well for a lot of developers. Uh, at the same time, I can certainly understand how these other companies, they look at the, particularly at the hyperscale cloud people, and they say, you're taking our code and you're making money with it. And the reason why they're making money with it is because their business model was never the software. Their business model was providing the services, the hardware infrastructure layers you needed to turn raw code into a easy to consume product, service rather, that could be used by anyone to do work. And uh, so it was that AWS, you know, looked at this and said, this licensing change with Elastic was very deliberately designed so that we could no longer do it, that customers would have to work with Elastic. And AWS said, well, okay, if you really want to do that, you can, but we're going to take the code before you split it off, and we're going to do our own, a true open source version of it, because, again, our business model does not depend on this illusion that the code itself could intrinsically become valuable. We are going to open source it so that you can run it on our machines, or for that matter, you could take that code, you could run it on Azure, you could run it on Google Cloud, you could run it on Linode, you name it. It's truly open source. You can run it anywhere. And we think, though, that you're going to prefer to keep going with us. Uh, in the end, uh, both companies apparently are doing rather well with this. Some company, some customers have indeed gone ahead with Elastic, and they're you know buying into the Elastic model of doing things. Others are uh, have said, you know what, AWS works for us, and we'll just continue to do use this AWS ethified. Elastic, and we'll be we'll happily work for with that. Uh, these battles are going to continue for the foreseeable future. Again, I really encourage companies though that are investing in open source technology to uh, really take a long, hard look at what they're doing and at their business model. And also, for that matter, uh, I see what I see happening with a lot of these companies is. They're in there like their ABC, well, well past ABC rounds of funding. They've got all these people who all the, it's not so much that the developers need pay. Most of these companies have always been able to pay their developers. It's all the initial rounds of funding people who want, I mean, the only reason venture capitalists invest in a company is they want to see double, triple, quadruple their money. They're not interested in, making um, money as a conventional business. They're interested in, uh, in baseball terms, home runs. 
rather than singles. They're interested in free point shots. They're not interested in how good you are at shooting free throws, to use basketball as an analogy. So I really think a lot of the push to uh, move into these new uh, open core licenses or inner source versions, that's being driven more by VCs, I think, than anyone else. That's very interesting. That's well said. Yeah. The the other flip side of the coin is the other thing that uh, another technology stack, so to speak, that you've talked about that is um, enjoying explosive growth is called OpenStack. Um, I've looked right. at it in the past a little bit and then kind of forgot about it. And then when I mm -hmm. saw your article, I was like, oh, yeah. And I started looking at the site and I'm like, this is really interesting. For mm -hmm. those of us that don't know about OpenStack or what exactly it is, could you unpack that for us a little bit? Sure. Uh, the fundamental description of OpenStack is it's a uh, open source infrastructure as a service uh, software stack, though it has expanded greatly. Uh, underneath its uh, umbrella organization, Open Infrastructure Foundation, uh, it also incorporates uh, continuous integration and continuous deployment now, uh, uh, networking, you name it, anything that you want in a cloud stack, you pretty much can find somewhere in the open infrastructure, open stack universe. But unlike the hyper cloud people, uh, they never try to turn it into a company. There have certainly been companies involved in it that have worked with it. Uh, Rackspace, uh, the Texas-based uh, hosting company slash cloud company were the first ones to uh, invest in it. But now it's a, it's a pure software uh, play. And uh, it's a variety of companies have come together. It's, this is software that it's not like, when you think of the traditional open source developer, you think of individuals scratching their own itch. This was always about companies and organizations scratching the need for that, uh, for a cloud service. And uh, so in a way, actually, this is actually, it, this springs very forth very naturally from our earlier conversation, because this is an open source project, which was always all about the cloud per se, and that anyone can run this cloud. Um, now, over the years, it's done a lot of things, and where it has really grabbed people's attention in the in the uh, business universe is in the telecoms, because companies like um, Verizon in the United States and uh, Deutsche Telekom, China Mobile, it's it's a global phenomena. All these telecoms, and they look at what the hyper cloud people are doing and say, well, yes, we need that same sort of gigantic global range of services, but we do not, boy, do we not want to put the crown jewels of our businesses, 5G and so on, into the hands of a, uh, of a, of a Microsoft Azure. We'll want, we want to run it ourselves on our own machines. Where can we find a soup-to-nuts software uh, stack that will cloud stack that will let us do that. And they looked at uh, OpenStack and said, this works actually. So now they're all very heavily invested in it. And uh, 
it's again, it's become um, it's one of those hidden infrastructure programs. Um, I mean, people using their 5G phones uh, don't know that underneath it, the odds are pretty darn good that there's an OpenStack uh, cloud running all of it in the background. But and usually it often is. And uh, it's not just, though, for that particular vertical, though that's an enormous vertical. It's mm -hmm. also very okay. useful in a lot of other places. Some companies are using it to provide, uh, I think it's Deutsche Telekom, actually, is they have their own cloud offering, sort of a uh, somewhere between... Uh, the Google Drive and the mega clouds, clouds for business people who are not mega business people who don't need all the bells and whistles of an AWS, but they still want a lot of cloud mm -hmm. service. They're using OpenStack to provide their customers with those services. And it's going pretty well. Another um, industry that I don't know much about, but I find very interesting after reading some of your um, articles is uh, the fintech industry. Um, I have an ex-colleague that has moved into a fintech company that's a new startup in, mm -hmm. also in Texas. Um, but uh, in like the article that you wrote, you mentioned that VCs have kind of said that they think open source fintech startups such as Move, OpenBB, A16Z, um, right can be the uh, uh, sets up fintech to kind of be the next industry for open source to disrupt. And I think if there's right. an industry that needs this disruption, but that has kind of been disrupted by this whole uh, cryptocurrency thing, but maybe this new idea with open source disrupting this industry could be something more sustainable. Um, can you tell us a bit more about how the fintech industry is? Because there's some associations you've talked about. The Open Source right. in Finance Foundation and the FinTech Open right. Source Foundation, these are also not as foundations right. I've ever heard of. So if you can just right. like give us like a nice overview of okay. this entire industry. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, uh, let me open by saying that I'm a crypto cynic. <laughs> I think it's all just a... Uh, I, I have a nice Dutch tulip here. <laughs> I'll be happy to sell you uh, for, say, uh, Bitcoin. And I assure you that tulip in the, by, say, 2026 will be more valuable growing in your garden than that Bitcoin was. But, uh, you know, leaving that aside, that's actually sort of, you know, all the crypto coin uh, currencies are actually sort of a side issue. And I'm afraid they really are just... Uh, it's just an enormous scam. I know it's an enormously popular scam as well, but, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of scams come and go, and then at the time, everyone is enthusiastic about them, but in the end, no one ends up winning. So that's sort of the fun, frolicly, and ultimately extremely scary side. On the other side, you have the people doing serious work with... Uh, finances, and that includes the banks, the stock exchanges, uh, financial companies, and your credit cards, and so on. And they have, over the years, been somewhat disrupted by open source, like in the um, late 90s, early aughts, uh, 
the stock exchanges all went over to uh, Linux as their foundational operating system. And, uh, but that was just, you know, sort of like deep infrastructure. Now, though, the financial companies have woken us to realize that we need to interoperate with each other. We need to uh, have a much more transparent, less friction between the application on your phone that says you want to uh, buy a ticket from, say, Ticketmaster. Horrible company, by the way. But uh, how can they smooth that out so that if whether you're using an American Express, a Visa, a MasterCard, whatever, the transaction is smooth, transparent, and works across a variety of different platforms. Because at the moment, it may look transparent to you on this side, but it's actually, it's pretty darn mucky back there in the uh, back rooms of where all this stuff hooks together. And it's also <clears throat> very expensive to uh, do this. So for the longest time, uh, if somebody wanted to, say, start taking oh, Discover cards, a, uh, I don't know if they have them in South Africa, but it's a uh, fairly popular in the United States, but minor league uh, a credit card. And... Uh, being able to write the code to do that, it's often it's done proprietarily, in-house, it's difficult. And so every store, every vendor who wants to do this, they have to write their own code. And just like when every other business, sooner or later people wake up and realize, do we really want to reinvent the wheel? I mean, we know credit cards. We know other people accept Discover. Why do we have to do this in a proprietary manner? And now, for a long time there, banks, which tend to be very conservative operations, said, no, 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 we don't want to do this in an open way. But over time, they've realized that open source is not as scary, dangerous as they always thought it was. And that this just makes a whole lot more sense to do this in an open source way and not just to be an open source code consumer, but let's share some of our thoughts along with the other companies. And so we can all, you know, work together and we'll compete on other things rather than our code basis. Because at the end of the day, and why open source has beat everybody else into submission, everything, every in all other aspects of software development is, it's just easier if we all work together. We can then compete on other issues and rather than on fundamental code. And uh, these companies are realizing this. They're also realizing that open standards make a whole lot of sense as well. Who needs, you know, 23 different standards on how to, uh, process a credit card transaction when we if we could just all agree on one uh if we could say for again for the apps on your phone wouldn't it be nice if we just had one open api because at the end of the day it's always about i'm going to pay you x for y 
and you're going to return Y for me for X, and it will be logged and audited in such a manner. It really makes a whole lot more sense if you just have an open standards all the way through. And uh, it's moving slowly, but it's... Uh, I see open source in many industries acting like it's a, like a little snowball you start with, and then suddenly you have an avalanche, and you've got huge mounds of snow bounding down the mountain. And I think, and the VCs also think, which is more important than what I think, that uh, this, these transformations are on the way of happening. And uh, again, people on the street won't notice that much of a difference, but it will make an enormous difference, though, for really anyone in financial transactions. Hopefully that means that, like, if I'm a little store here and I'm taking credit cards, I may actually see the percentage I have to pay to the credit card company go down because it's not going to cost them as much mm. money to handle all those transactions because it adds up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you th yeah, no, for sure. Um, do you think that having an open standard like this for how you process payments can then have the knock-on effect of opening up the ability to be a payment processor to a wider world because like africa is very underserved here right like we don't have right. stripe we can't accept stripe right. as a payment method and um right. i don't know if that is because of a business decision on stripes end or whether it's because of an interoperability problem that they have with uh, the way banks operate in Africa. So I'm wondering if something like an open standard like that could have like these beneficial impacts of empowering a whole continent, so to speak. I don't know about the specifics of Stripe in Africa. I do know though that uh, open standards like this would I think help African uh, banks and uh, other financial institutions because it would help you know, level the playing field. If I can use an open source solution and with open standards, uh, instead of having to pay someone <coughs> uh, money for a proprietary solution, or maybe they're just simply not interested in dealing with me because they think that my market is too small for them to care about. Uh, you know, I, I think I could see that making a real difference. It's like how smartphones are so vital to uh, the uh, much more, I mean, certainly they're a huge deal here in the States, but uh, in places like uh, Kenya, if I mean, everything runs on smartphones. I mean, it's just uh, 4G is, <coughs> is how business is done. And uh, if you can put applications that make money managing and transaction easier on the low power of a, a smartphone, that would certainly help them. Yep, I 100% agree. That's exciting to know that something like that is coming down the pipe. Now to pivot a little bit. <laughs> We've talked about mm -hmm. a lot of positive things. Um, right. And so we'll, we'll take the, the elephant out of the closet, so to speak, and, and go there, or is it a big bird? Um, so Twitter, Twitter, <laughs> Twitter happened. Um, 
And um, this is actually the topic that I alluded to in the beginning of the of the podcast, which mm-hmm. I know you did some right. research in, and um, I know mm-hmm. you you eventually got a, a exclusive interview with Will Norris, who's Twitter's former open source lead, and um, right. he he shared some interesting information with you that I'd love you to share with us. Mm-hmm. The one quote sure. I I really loved from him is that he said, "I don't care how much you call yourself hardcore." Open source communities mm-hmm. are built on relationships and trust, and now Twitter has neither. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I love it, but at the same time, it's like boom! It's it's as Elon said, let that sink in. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, it's it's a little scary to think that that Twitter has decided to turn its or, or should I say Elon has decided to turn his back on open source, and open source mm-hmm. and Twitter. Um, what do you think are potentially some of the biggest impacts of, of that decision and about all these people that's no longer at Twitter? Well, uh, Twitter will fail. And it's just uh, some aspect, some components of it are not working properly at the moment. And they're not going to get fixed anytime soon because there, um, no one is there who knows. It's not even a matter of... That. They know they no longer have people who know how to solve a particular problem. They no longer have people who know enough to know if there is a problem. I mean, there's no one there to read the logs and look at the audit trails and go, something screwy here. Uh, I, I am a, a bit surprised that it made it through the World Cup without collapsing. Uh, but uh, you know, it's it's just a matter of time. It really is. Uh, and something will eventually go bang. And it will not be an easy fix. Uh, they, they literally don't have the people to fix this kind of stuff. Now, moving forward, uh, mm-hmm. stuff like uh, adding features. I mean... You can sort of slap on features like uh, the new blue is a slap on feature. It doesn't actually do anything fundamentally yep. different with the underlying code. Um, but mm-hmm. it's, it, it doesn't really add anything of value either. It will have problems. It will go... Um, bad things will happen with it. it it's just... Uh, you know, it's it's just it's it's hard for me to say because there are so many potentially terrible things that could go on here, and uh, he's not helping himself any. Um, yesterday, mm-hmm. he said, "Vote. Should I continue to you know run Twitter?" And the vote is in. The people said no. <laughs> Now, what's he yeah, going to do yeah, now? Who knows? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, is he going to take Twitter into bankruptcy? I've seen that suggested at times. It certainly is not worth the billions mm. he paid for it. Of course, he knew that going in, <laughs> but he you know, charged ahead yeah, anyway. Yeah. And certainly uh, mm-hmm. people and his other more successful operations such as Tesla and SpaceX, they would much rather have him pay attention to, uh, you know, 
getting the teething problems out of the Tesla Semi, which are then the first of them are now actually on the roads. Uh, it'd be nice if we saw the production lines for that being cleaned up, and because that's still going painfully slow. Uh, instead, though, he's spending all of his time, you know, making headlines and annoying people, but not really doing anything for his business, for the Twitter business. Um, It's it's just, it's ugly. I feel really sorry for the developers who have been caught in this. Uh, It's also, it's still ongoing. Even this last Friday, he let go of some more developers. And... uh, Oh, boy. You just, you can't do this. Uh, I mean, Tesla engineers are, are yeah. you know, they're really good at managing uh, electrical flow and battery life and, you know, mastering self-driving on embedded systems. That's great. But none of that translates into skills for a social network uh and mm-hmm. wow, it's just what were you thinking? <laughs> I mean, it seems to me like um, turning your back on open source at this point is completely the opposite thing of what you should be should have done. Do you have any idea, like, why would he have decided that that is a negative thing for for Twitter to have all these open source things? Does he? Do you think he perhaps just feels it's um, it takes up too much time of the engineers that they should be spending on working on making Twitter more profitable. Um, I honestly, I, I don't think it's that he's so much anti-open source as I think he honestly does not understand um, the business. He, he just, he really just doesn't get it. Uh and uh, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, he ends, I mean, he but the very besides, okay, looking at from other, he alienates their advertisers immediately. And Blue was not making mm-hmm. any money, though. Any money, any well, Twitter doesn't make money, Twitter, Twitter burns money, but any cash flow they had <laughs> was coming from their advertisers. And to alienate them immediately, mm-hmm. it's just what are you doing? You know, he fired also a bunch of the yeah. ad people. Okay, I understand. He hated the people on the top. Fine, get rid of the C-level people. But you still need the top-level sales people to go out there, get those contracts, bring in the money, and they're gone now, too. Who does that? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, well, from I, I certainly care... The open source part is what I care about, and just the whole technology stack. Mm-hmm. But it's it's mm-hmm. not just the technology stack that's getting hammered. It's it's all these other aspects of the business as well. Do you think Mastodon is ready to take over as a new no. concept of social um, media? I like Mastodon. Uh, I like the code it's getting uh they've been making some serious improvements in that code base lately and you know yay mastered on mm-hmm. uh but i don't see anyone out there at this time having a twitter killer or a twitter replacement uh mastodon mm-hmm. does not scale all that well uh 
every Mastodon, what do they call it? They call them pods, I think. Oh, well. If there are any yeah, Mastodon so. tech people, forgive me. There's so many social networks out there, I can't keep track of, of the exact technical details <laughs> of each of them. But you, you, they're essentially that you have all these independent little pods out there, and they all connect with each other using protocols, and that seems to be scaling pretty well. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you still have all these individual little Allens out there. So each Allen runs itself with its own set of rules and so on. And again, it doesn't particularly scale that well. And uh, maybe it will, but I, and I, I, I like being on Mastodon. I will be moving pretty much everything lock, stock and barrel off of Twitter shortly on the Mastodon, because I've just gotten really tired of hanging into t Twitter as long as I have. It just hasn't, it's no longer worth it to me. But, uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, again, I, I look at all the others, counter-social, post-news, and so on, and uh, nobody really quite has it together yet. I think Mastodon is going to be very important. It's going to be the... Uh, how to put it? Uh, it's going to be what I think most people will be using for the next year or so. But I think something else may yet end up replacing Twitter. But I don't think at this point it will be Mastodon. Do you think that there's room for a company such as Mozilla to disrupt this um, to disrupt this space, building off of something like Mastodon? but building in their sense of mission and safety and w keeping the internet open and free? Uh, I think Mozilla, had it started earlier in this space, might have had more of an influence. The Mozilla Foundation lately has been, excuse me, uh, much more conservative. They've sort of pulled back. I mean, they pulled back from mm -hmm. Rust, which I think was a big strategic mistake. And uh, mm. I don't know. I, 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 I used to have a whole lot more faith in Firefox and Mozilla than I do now. And now I see Mozilla as being sort of a very conservative organization. I don't see them really moving forward that much. Even Firefox itself, um, it's just, I don't know, it just seems sort of like a tired project to me. Uh, I, I mean, mm, I wish I didn't. I used to love Firefox, but uh, it's just for the last few years, I have not been that impressed. And from a strategic point of view, and it would take a strategic shift uh, I just don't see Mozilla uh, making that kind of move. Uh, it would be nice if it would be nice if they did, but I did, again, I just don't see Mozilla doing that. Mm. So you're thinking we need we need a disruptor like what Mozilla used to be? Uh, yeah, I think a I think right now the time is ripe for a social network disruptor. Uh, I don't know who that might be. Because, uh, again, I've been looking at a lot of the mm -hmm. other alternatives, and I like them, but I don't see 
I don't see anyone who's impressed me yet. I don't see anyone who said, let's reinvent the wheel, because right now, actually, this is a time where we could reinvent the wheel. And I think there's room yeah, for a yeah. new social network that actually does pay serious attention to both free speech and at the same time keeping enough control to keep it uh, Twitter from or any social network from becoming a 4chan or 8chan or any of those other cesspools uh, mm, mm. of social network. Yeah, no, for sure. That'd be, that's definitely advisable. So um, this has been a lovely conversation, very insightful, um, a lot of things to think about. I have two closing questions for sure. you. I think I'll start with the, the last one and then ask the one I was going to ask second to last last. So uh, what is your hope and if you feel so uh, obliged predictions for the open source ecosystem over the next, say, five years? Oh, goodness. Uh, I think it's going to continue to become more important. I think uh, we have had a wake-up call on the security side because uh, we, we have been forced to realize that the software supply chain, we've got to do a better job of securing it whether uh, and for no and just knowing what the heck is in it, uh, software bills of material s bombs are going to continue to become much more important. Uh, all of that's going to take time. Uh, people have historically developers have put put security a long way in the back of their list of things they want to get done. Um, we can't be so cavalier about it now because as the Log4j uh, fiasco uh, revealed, we can have software that is way, way in the background that millions of mm. people depend on every day and they have no clue what this program even was, where it came from, what it does. Uh, and then, mm. wow, suddenly all this code, all these programs are going awry, and they're still going awry to this day. That Log4J is not a solved problem yet. Should be. The code is fixed, but the uh, all the programs based around that code, some of them still haven't been patched, and I'm sure some of the people out there are running buggy code that they don't even know that it's causing havoc in their systems. They just think things are running really slow. It's going to be a fundamental shift in putting security forward. And a lot of developers won't like it mm. because mm. it's not as fun as creating a new feature or making something run even faster, but it's, it's, it's essential. It really is. It's just essential. Seeing that the whole world runs on open source, we better make sure it's secure. Um, exactly. And then in closing, uh, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? Mm, best piece of advice I ever received. Oh, goodness gracious me. Uh, I, I guess go for it. Uh, way back 
there I was back there on the IBM mainframe talking to people. I already knew some people in technology journalism. And I asked them, um, uh-huh. you know, I'm good at all this tech stuff. I'm good at explaining it. Um, I think actually I would be happiest explaining technology to people and to businesses. And uh, how should I do that? And they gave me a lot of very practical and specific advice. Um, and as they like to say, after years later, they said I'm the only person they ever, who ever asked them for advice about how to basically how to become a writer, who actually then went out there and did what they said. And gosh, it worked. And uh, I, I, I encourage people to, you know, if you think you have a good idea, talk to other people. And if they say, yes, that's a good idea, that's a good career path, that's a good project. Do it. Just don't wait. Don't hesitate. Once you know what you really want to do, once you've got your resources lined up, go out there and make it happen. Uh, it may just work for you, and you may find yourself years later very happily continuing to do what you thought you could never do um, much earlier in your life. Yeah, that's a lovely piece of advice, and that's a great place to end it. So thanks so much, Stephen. Um, I'm glad we finally made this happen. Um, I hope you feel better much, much uh, very soon, and um, I'll Me speak too. to you on Slack and everywhere else. Thanks so much. Have a good rest of your day. You too. Take care. Ta. Thank you for listening to the Mechanical Inc. podcast. Join the conversation on Discord. All the links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, Please like and share it with your friends and colleagues. If you have a moment, please leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts, as this helps others find us and helps us make a better podcast for you, our listeners.